If you see sort of salmon swimming up a river, that's a sign of the quality of that habitat. You know, if you visit somewhere and you see children, children of different ages, with and without their parents, being active and visible in the neighbourhood, then that's a sign of the health of that habitat, that human habitat. A city that is good for children is good for everyone. A concept that has begun to gain more traction as cities look to new urbanism principles to apply to their respective cities. It's one Tim Gill, author of Urban Playground, How Child-Friendly Planning and Design Can Save Cities, has been championing since the 90s. Based in the UK, he has laid a foundation for a career in research on the topic and was the former director of Play England, a children's play council. In Tim's book, he asks questions like, what type of cities do we want our children to grow up in? Car-dominated, noisy, polluted, and devoid of nature, or walkable, welcoming, and green? He emphasizes that as the climate crisis and urbanization escalate, cities urgently need to become more inclusive and sustainable. His book helps us look at cities through the eyes of children while strengthening the case for planning and transportation policies that work for people of all ages and for the planet. It also features case studies exploring unique interventions found in cities all over the world with concrete examples of how child-friendly insights and ideas might be incorporated into master plans, public spaces, and streetscapes. Tim upholds the notion that healthier children means happier families, greener neighborhoods, stronger communities, in cities that are better for everyone. When reviewing Tim's book ahead this episode, I found myself projecting my own childhood onto much of what he shared in his work, an experience I think anyone might share upon reading. He invites you to look at cities through the eyes of your inner child and revisit childhood memories of play. Thus, for this conversation, both Resite's founder, Martin Berry, and myself, Alexandra Siepenthal, joined Tim in a conversation to discuss how our own experiences as children helped us understand what cities need and don't need. Hello, everybody. And we're here back again with Recite Design in the City podcast. Uh, welcome and thanks for listening. Today we have Tim Gill. Uh, Tim is a global advocate for children's outdoor play and mobility. He's an independent scholar. He's a writer and a consultant. He's the author of No Fear, Growing Up in a Risk-Averse Society, which the New York Times calls a handbook for the movement of freer, riskier play, and Urban Playground, How Child-Friendly Planning and Design Can Save Cities, from Riga Publications uh, just this year. He's presented in over 20 countries across five continents. So. You know, this episode should be about childhood and about childhood play and, and planning uh, cities with children in mind. And it, it sort of begs the question of um, how do we think about cities uh, for ourselves and what are our own children childhood experiences like in cities? And like me personally, I was born in the center of Manhattan. I, I like many families uh, in the 1980s in New York, we moved out to the suburbs. And so I spent a lot of my childhood in the backyard, like a lot of suburban families. Um, and I remember, I think I was, I was, you know, probably seven years old when I stopped going to day camp in the summer uh, because my parents would just kind of like open the back door and I would play uh, with my friend. 
down the street, we'd build forts and we kind of used our hands to build. And as a landscape architect, I really love this kind of um, self-play aspects of playgrounds. Uh, of course, studied the workyards in the 1970s in, in New York where, you know, the, the kinds of playgrounds where people, kids would use hammers and, and screwdrivers and, and build, you know, things out of raw construction materials and this kind of tactility you know, getting our hands on these types of materials was really important for my childhood play. And also I think many other children, which, you know, over time I think has been kind of dumbed down or distilled or sterilized. Um, but I just think uh, also as a father now, as a three-year-old, I, I see, you know, I don't know if I'm projecting with my son that he has like my tendency to want to build, um, but uh, uh, he's constantly, you know, we, we allow him to, basically uh, have a lot of free play and focus, focus time where he can kind of explore one thing for hours. Um, and so this is really, was really important for me and it's quite important for my son Hayden. I don't know, like Alex, did you have a similar experience? You're also American. Um, you grew up in San Diego. What was it like for you as a kid? Yeah, kind of. Um, so I, you know, I grew up in San Diego and it's quite different from New York in the sense that it's just so spread out and so suburban, even if it's, you know, San Diego proper. Um, I specifically lived in a cul-de-sac, um, which kind of made it a safer place to play, but we were never like on playgrounds or anything. It was very much just making use of the neighborhood and, and people's properties you know, trees into, you know, whatever we imagined it to be. And I, I, I also um, kind of, uh, there was like, outside the cul-de-sac, there was this big median in between like the major thoroughfare that really could have been well used as a park, but instead it was just this dead space that was wasted and with trees and like bushes that, you know, especially being in California were more a fire hazard. Um, and so, you know, Tim, when I was reading your, through your book, I, I was really found myself going back into how did I see the city and like the area I was growing up in um, as a child, and I kind of you know, really saw everything as as my own playground. Um, so much that I even went through Google Maps and went back, um, and just and was kind of sad to see that nothing changed. That median is still there with uh, you know these trees and just like. It could be just a beautiful use of space for, for neighborhood children. And there was lots of children in my neighborhood and we all, you know, kind of did that. I mean, actually that, that exercise, I, I'd invite all adults to go on Google Maps and go back and, and look at and take a street view of even better, you know, the, the places where you grew, grew up, uh, partly to reconnect with those memories, um, you know, are, I mean, my memories are largely of, of growing up in a, a suburban part of uh, what we call the home county, so about 50 miles from London. Um, and my childhood wasn't spent in, in backyards. My childhood was spent, you know, everywhere else. Like the, the gardens were kind of boring. Like that's where the parents were. We wanted to get away from the parents. So we were, we were, you know, really by the age of, of nine or 10, I was roaming the neighborhood with my friends on our bikes, you know, almost that, that kind of ET um, uh, vision of, of a free range childhood. And, okay, so childhood is very different today. And, it, you know, it's, it, it, it's, it, uh, 
we can, you can be accused of nostalgia and of you know just sort of harking back to some golden age um but i think that's too quick i think that many people i speak to have very strong memories of the places where they used to play and their freedom that they had as children and i think part of a good enough childhood is having that chance to explore to gradually kind of expand your horizons um, to kind of get to know the people and places around you, to build relationships, uh, you know, attachments to place, to get your, yeah, your hands dirty, to figure out how to create things. I remember one summer, summer of 76, I was 12 years old, and it was the skateboard craze in the UK, okay? So every, every kid had a skateboard, and we built a skate ramp out of, you know, um, like hardboard and you know angle irons and it's for the whole summer this skate ramp was outside our house in the cul-de-sac where we lived and looking back on it now it's kind of um you know it's kind of amazing unfortunately i don't have any photos but what what it speaks to is is children's appetite for experience and for autonomy and for freedom and i think we in many parts of the world don't take that aspect of childhood seriously enough. Um, and, and at the heart of my book of Urban Playground is the vision that uh, um, cities need to enhance children's everyday freedoms. Um, so it's not just about the creation of kind of ghettos or reservations called you know playgrounds with fences around them where parents come in um, and the, and the children have you know three different pieces of equipment to play on and then they get taken home again it's about uh children having you know uh, neighborhoods to explore they can meet their friends they can get to school on their own they can go to um you know sport or or, or the library or just hang out with their mates and that that is not um you know a luxury that previous generations of children enjoy but that is just no longer on offer but it's an essential part of childhood it's interesting what you said Tim that that um the, this free range parenting you know I've read lots of articles uh, as a father myself now about how to you know what's the right way to parent and I look back at the way my parents um treated me and my three siblings I feel like my parents might have been arrested now <laughs> for letting me, you know, run down the street at seven years old. And, and we had a lake very nearby our house, too. So we spent a lot of time in the water um, in the you know, fall, winter, spring, summer. We were always near, near the water. And so it's really it's much harder to do that now, I think, because um, we have the kind of helicopter parents that, that want to make sure that they, they've got their you know, leash on their kids at all time. Um, and God forbid they play in the backyard. Um, um, but I think uh, kids like us, we, we, we played everywhere in the neighborhood. We, we had, uh, I also had a skateboard. I, I wasn't very good. I used to sit on my skateboard <laughs> and, and go down hills. It was more like a, it was like a sled with wheels. Um, and, and so I, I really appreciate you, you talking a little bit about that and, and parenting as well, because it's so integral to this topic. But how did you become um, interested in how children participate in the city? I think the realization that Firstly, that, as I've said, that this, this taste of freedom, this sort of trying responsibility on for size, a gradually, you know, expanding our horizons is, is really important. And and so it's not just about play, but play 
is a, is absolutely central. And then realizing as a as an advocate and as a campaigner that one of the big barriers to children playing, getting out, and getting around was the way towns and cities are designed and built. It's not the only factor, but it's a really important factor. And in fact, I'd say it's fundamental because it, if if cities are built right, then the culture can change and attitudes can change and, you know, and, and, and good things can happen. But if, if the city is just built in, in such a way that, that it's hostile to children, which really means that actually we're talking about car dominant places, then you know that's it's kind of game over really um the the the, the growth of the car and of car centric planning over the past 100 120 years because it goes back that far is the single biggest factor behind the loss of children's freedoms and and and, and if you like right to roam and that's that's something that's now baked into most towns and cities and then the culture kind of wraps around that because if you've had two three generations of or everybody just being used to organizing our lives around the car it's pretty hard to then you know turn that around um because there's no getting away from the basic threat that cars pose to children that's that's just simple physics so that really was the sort of starting point of my interest in in urban planning and design was uh, thinking about and trying to reveal how the way neighbourhoods are shaped and built really doesn't help uh, to, to create that sort of, you know, rich diet of childhood experiences that I think children deserve. Yeah, Alex, you brought something up earlier uh, a few days ago about Enrique Peñalosa and something he said at one of our events years ago. Uh, are you familiar with the with the mayor from Bogota, the former mayor? Oh, from yes. Bogota? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We've met, actually. Yeah. 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 Enrique is such a character. I really, really love him. He uh, really is. Him. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and one of the things he said, he said at one of our events, he said it in a couple of films, um, is that a city designed for children is a city that's fit for everybody. And I think this is, I think, a lot of what you talk about as well. Uh, if we can design safe places for kids, it's also going to be safe for me and, and for Alex and yourself. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, in the same way that if you see sort of salmon swimming up a river, that's a sign of the quality of that habitat. You know, if you visit somewhere and you see children, children of different ages, with and without their parents, being active and visible in the neighbourhood, then that's a sign of the health of that habitat, that human habitat. Um, so I, I take that Peñalosa slogan pretty seriously. Uh, and, 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 and the reason for it is that, you know, children are both vulnerable, they're more vulnerable to, to environmental threats, uh, and they are also, you know, nature's most efficient learning machines um and 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 they learn best through you know their own active efforts to understand and make sense of the world around them um and so you know this is why i, I think it's so great that we're seeing child development people and early childhood agencies getting interested in in urban planning and design now so one of my um i guess sponsors really supporters is the bernard van leer foundation you know historically was all of their work focused on early childhood education, you know, settings and programs aimed at, at groups of children. But they've realized that even early in life, you know, where we think it's all about the family, actually the, 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 the built environment, the neighborhoods, uh, the, the, you know, the pollution or lack of it, 
the, the, the physical freedom, uh, the mobility of parents and children all have a really big impact on children's lives now and on their life chances as they grow up. Um, so I think I think you know it, it, this is a this is a an emerging set of ideas, what I call child-friendly urban planning. Um, it's got links with ideas from children's participation, children's rights, but it's also taking an inspiration from other sources, including a lot of the you know progressive ideas that people like Enrique Peñalosa have been talking about, and and a lot of other urbanists as well. And one of the things I think is really exciting about bringing a children's lens to this topic is that it, it helps to be a, it's a kind of organizing framework and and helps to give a clear sort of narrative and a sense of direction and purpose to making cities better you know you can't help but focus on the long term if you think about children you can't help but take a more collective view um, if you think about children uh, and i think those are really um, they're assets, actually. They're re real kind of catalysts for the kind of conversations about, you know, who cities are for and how they need to change. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good segue. Um, uh, there, there's there's a question, maybe just more about the general background before we get into specifics. Like, um, you've been doing this work since the '90s, uh, right? And have you seen some you just mentioned some you just mentioned the word change and i think this it's a good good thing to talk about have things evolved since the 90s uh you think it's going in the right direction okay so i think it's quite likely that things have got worse in in an objective sense for children so if you if you measure things like you know how much freedom do children have at what age do children start being allowed to go to school or or to cycle or to use public transport those sorts of measures have probably got worse, um, which is pretty depressing. Um, on the upside, I mean, I, I try to be positive. I think that there is much greater interest and awareness, interest in and awareness of this topic than there was even 10 years ago. And a lot of the reasons why things have got worse are, you know, nobody gets up out of bed in the mornings and says, right, how can I restrict children's freedom? You know, how how can I make it less fun and, and enjoyable to be a kid? These are side effects of changes that have been happening, you know, in, in as a result of, of sort of modern life and the growth of car traffic and also you know, probably um, changes in our family living patterns, cultural change. So. Uh, children are, are kind of suffering the side effects of these bigger social, environmental and cultural changes. But what I think is positive is that there is an ever-growing group of people, including parents, uh, including educators, including planners and designers, uh, city leaders, uh, who are waking up to what's happening and starting to do something about it. So we now have mayors, you know, you mentioned Penelosa, but we've got you know, Arion Beliage, who's the mayor of Tirana in Albania, uh, one of the cities that I visited as part of the research for my book, who, for whom children are a kind of symbol of the future of the city um, in a, and, and, and a way of um, bridging some of the divides in that extremely divided and, and pretty poor, I mean, economically disadvantaged part of the world. And, you know, he's by no means the only one. I think I think uh, the, we're really seeing the emergence of, 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 you know, 
influential, powerful people. Anne Hidalgo is another example, mayor of Paris, um, who uh, are um, alive to both the, the reality of what's happening in children's lives and the political and moral power uh, that comes from bringing a children's lens into the conversation and, and thinking seriously about what, uh, what it means to be a child growing up in a city today. Yeah, absolutely. Tirana is Tirana is a good uh, a good example. Sorry, Alex, I, I I cut you off again. Tell us uh, what you're thinking. Yeah, how how do you account for the difference in childhood autonomy across different generations? Um, what is the crux of the difference? Is it a structural design, parenting habits? Are those interlinked? There's a kind of a worry that you're seeing a sort of generational spiral. Okay, um, a sort of vicious circle through the generations that, uh, you know, that the current generation of parents, young parents now, are a, by and large, you know, a, a group of people who did not have the same sort of freedoms that my generation had, or even, you know, people. So I'm in my 50s, but maybe even people in their 30s. And so there is a line of thought that says, you know, those people, uh, as they become parents, they won't have that sort of reservoir, those memories of autonomy um, and the importance of, of, of you know, of, of, of expanding their horizons. They will have, you know, spent a lot of time in their bedrooms uh, or in the digital world. I'm, I'm not, you know, that's a, that's a slightly, it is, a, it is, it's a kind of worrying train of thought, but I think that it's a little bit too simplistic. Um, I think there are still lots of parents who, you know, parents are very different. It's a, no two parents are the same. Um, and I think that there's actually, I see larger numbers of parents, even parents who you might think have had different childhoods to mine, who are passionate about giving their own children the kind of taste of freedom that, that we are talking about. And, and they're, so they're parents who are involved in things like Play Street campaigns, I don't know if you've come across the idea of play streets, but this is a really simple, low cost. Essentially, it's closing streets to traffic for a few few hours, residential streets, maybe once a week, so that simply so that people can come out and use the street for play and socialising. So it's a really simple model, and it's really taken off here in the UK, and it's and actually it's been running in other parts of Europe for some years, but it's also spreading to you know, Canada, Australia, and it's parents and other residents coming together who are making this happen. Um, and so I'm, I'm encouraged by that. And I, and I think it, what it says to me is that actually this, you know, we all want to feel like we have some control over our lives and that we are confident and capable people and that we can, you know, uh, 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 yeah, we are resilient. And so parents feel that too and are alive to the value of giving their children, you know, a taste of freedom, even though that's harder to do than it used to be. And so that sort of argue, that, that, that pessimistic view of generational decline, you know, as each generation comes along, they're more risk averse, less interested in the outdoors. Uh, or in in getting around on I don't think that's true and I also think to cut to the chase I suppose with my book that one of the things that will really make a difference to all of this 
is the planning and design work that is happening in cities. Right? Cities are changing fast, especially cities in, in low and middle income countries. That's where a lot of the change is going to happen right in the next 10, 20 years. And it is in the gift of city leaders to go, you know, to take that in different directions. And I see a lot of signs that uh, city leaders and that at the national level as well, um, people are waking up to the, to, to put it negatively, the, the consequences, the downside of bad urban planning, and that that is not a future that, that we can tolerate in terms of the environment and climate change, but also in terms of human health and, uh, you know, environmental degradation and also equity and, um, you know, just sort of basic quality of life in cities. So none of this is easy, but uh, I, I think there is a growing appetite for a kind of progressive uh, push. And to repeat the point I made earlier, thinking about children and what this means for children is a really powerful way to add momentum to that movement. Just a short break for a PSA from Resight. We have loved getting to create this podcast, and we hope you've been enjoying it just as much. Reaching a new audience on a new platform with the same mission, elevating people and ideas to improve the urban environment. In the middle of a pandemic has been what we feel to be an important action. Also important to us is that these ideas remain accessible and free. As a nonprofit, we are only able to produce this podcast thanks to the generous support of the City of Prague, the Czech Ministry of Culture, corporate sponsors, private philanthropists, and our network of passionate architecture and city lovers like you. If you would like to support us as a patron, sponsor, or strategic partner, please get in touch at podcast at Your support allows us to continue sharing ideas to inspire more livable, lovable cities. Thank you so much for listening and... Let's jump back in with Tim and Martin. Has anyone been to Mexico City on a Sunday? I haven't. I have been to if you. I, I've been to Bogota on a Sunday, so this is you know the home of the Ciclovia, right? Um, this wonderful weekly festival every Sunday, like it seems like half the city comes together to just enjoy the freedom of the streets because they've taken the traffic away. Um, but, but no, I've, I've yet to visit Mexico City. I've heard some good things about some projects happening in Mexico City, but but haven't got there yet. I was fascinated. I worked there quite a lot um, when I was a landscape architect in my former life. Uh, like, I'd say around 2009 to 2012, I was there a lot. Maybe I lived there for six months at a time. Um, and Sundays were amazing because uh, the 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 main one of the main streets in the city in Reforma it's it's closed it's closed to traffic and so uh, the first time I saw this it was even before New York City underneath Mayor Bloomberg started this campaign on Broadway um, on Sundays and and so the first time I saw this I was running and I came upon this boulevard in Reforma with people you know if there were wheels on it people put it they put them on the street and and there was all sorts of you know uh, bikes and scooters and skateboards and every wagons you know anything you could could imagine from the 85 year old to the five-year-old and it brought so much joy i think to the people on the street and also to me 
um, that I, I saw the same kind of behavior in, in New York, you know, a few years later when, when, when Michael Bloomberg implemented the uh, Sunday Streets campaign in Broadway. You know, again, like if it had wheels on it, things I'd never even seen before, people were riding up and down Broadway. And it, again, like bringing so many smiles to the city. Is, is play like part of the essential infrastructure in cities? Okay, so play is part of the essential diet of experiences for every child, right? I hope we don't have to argue about that. And in fact, it's, it's enshrined in the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. So what do children need if they're to be able to play? Well, one of the things they need is space, right? You, you know, and, 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 and actually a variety of spaces. So then that has to involve the city, um, especially if you recognise that children you know, the one thing children want when they're playing is other children, right? Uh, not much fun playing on your own. So it, it, once you start making explicit the, the, what needs to be in place for kids to be able to play and to have regular play opportunities and, and for play to be, you know, to feature in their everyday lives, you, you, you immediately get to, you know, this is a topic that the city needs to address. Interestingly, and I write a bit about this in my book, um, you know, the, the, the space that we all think about when we talk about children play is the playground, right? You know, and we have a picture of what a playground looks like. As you know, in my book, I'm quite critical of that. But be that as it may, what's the history of the playground? The playground emerged in European and American cities in the wake of industrialization and the kind of mass movement into, into the um, growing cities and the growth of the car, because kids used to just play in the street, right? Urban kids, their playground was the street. Um, but as car traffic increased, frankly, it was it was it was mayhem. I mean, there was hundreds of children a year in New York City, in Detroit, in Chicago, in London, you know, being killed by cars. And so playgrounds were invented as a space an urban space that catered for children's play needs and wishes, but that were removed from the threat from traffic. Um, now, I think it's a failed model. Um, we, we, we may talk about that, but it, you say one thing in its favour, it is a recognition of children's claim on space and claim on you know city infrastructure, to, to use your term. By the way, I don't think playgrounds are entirely um, you know, uh, a, a kind of a broken or failed model. I just, um, it, it's my view that, that that they're not enough, and that if if we just think, oh, uh, kids need somewhere to play, so we'll just make some playgrounds. Um, firstly, you, you you don't answer that question about mobility, so you don't make you don't tackle the problems children face getting around, even getting to that playground. But also, it's it, by implication, it sort of says. Okay, that space is okay for kids, but everywhere else is out of bounds for kids. Um, and I think that's a that's a really um, uh, it's 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 an it, it's a morally unjust uh, way of thinking about how kids can live and grow up in a city. Definitely, and I like it even reminds me of a, a time when I was you know playing in this cul-de-sac, and I kind of ventured maybe farther than when my parents wanted me to go and I was riding a bike and um, a car like pretty fast tried to pull out of their driveway and almost hit me 
Um, and I was completely shaken up. And so I, I think when, at that point, I almost internalized it a little bit of like, no, this world, this space is not for me. And um, and I just think that has such a, a psychological effect on, on children as they're developing. Um, and then when I did want to go to a playground, I had to get driven there in a car and be dependent on something else to get to another space that was safe for me to play in. So what does that sort of dependency and relationship, how does that affect children? Right. Yeah. Yes. So um, I think what it, what it, what it engenders, what it, what it leads to is a kind of learned helplessness. And I know that's, that sounds very dramatic, but I, I, th I think it, 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 it starves children of the experiences that best help them to become independent, competent, capable people. Um, and, and I sometimes talk uh, about, you know, if we think about childhood as a life stage, then amongst other things, it's a kind of journey, right? And, and, and there's a sort of vague endpoint of childhood, which is independent, you know, adulthood, which is which is kind of taking more control over your own life and over your own destiny and 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 and, and your everyday choices. And so childhood is about the gradual transfer of sort of life management, time management, place management, you know, from adults to children. And you, you can you can really see that picture if you if you imagine it. And what I argue is that that gradual that transfer of responsibility is best done gradually so that you never asking children to make too big a step from one step, you know, from one stage to the next. And I think one of the things that's happening with children and young people today, especially as they come into adolescence or maybe, you know, I don't know, going to high school or senior high or, you know, those those big life changes is that that is a really huge step. Um, and it involves taking on a masses of extra responsibility and in a really scary way because they haven't had the lead up to it in terms of, of experience of, of, you know, uh, getting around on their own, dealing with everyday challenges, figuring out how to solve disputes with 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 people, you know, and and, and getting along socially, leading up to that big step. So, it's no surprise to me that we're seeing in many countries now growing levels of adolescent mental health problems. And I'm not the only person who's thinking that one of the factors that might lie behind this is you know, what you might call a kind of learned helplessness or, or to put it another way, uh, young people haven't had the chance to learn coping mechanisms to the same extent. Um, and, there, you know, and there are people who, who, who are working in child psychology and child psychiatry who are you know, exploring this right now as we speak. And actually with the pandemic, um, you know, that could be a really serious issue because you've now got, you know, vast numbers of children young people who've in you know in effect been under house arrest for well in some cases the best part of a year now some children will respond you know they'll re they'll respond resiliently to that but others will will struggle and that's gonna that's that anyway it adds extra impetus to my to my work is to say you know children have actually they've suffered terribly as a result of the pandemic. And we adults need to recognize what's happened and to compensate them because what's what's the one thing we know about the disease 
it's that it doesn't affect children. So we've asked children to make great sacrifices so that we, the adults, can stay healthier. Um, and, and, and I think there's a real moral obligation on us right now uh, around the world to recognise the sacrifices that we've, had, we've asked of children and to do our bit to kind of compensate them and also give them the space and time to you know, recover and, and bounce back from a difficult time. There's a bit about mobility in this discussion about the pandemic, right? You talked about house arrest. And I know my own son, he's been inside, you know, more often in the last year than, than outside. Uh, in fact, he's in quarantine now for two weeks in, in Taiwan. And, and, you know, he's just locked in a hotel room with, with, um, with my wife and his mother for two weeks. And he has, you know, he's seen his best friends uh, once in the last six months, basically outside, you know, on a walk. And this is tough for kids. I think um, I have to say, like one of my fondest—I shouldn't say fondest—one of my uh, most important memories as a child. And I think Alex and many other people that know me know that I have a terrible memory. So um, one of the things I remember the most is being in Montauk, a place where in Long Island on the beach, where we used to vacation a lot. And this is kind of the idyllic Long Island beach town. Um, at the end of, uh, of the island and we'd go there every summer and, and when I was about five I ran across the street and my father you know like many other parents after him and before him ran after me and kind of like picked me up by the back of my shirt as just as a car had kind of like screeched the brakes you know I was probably six inches away from being hit by the car and my father, you know, I remember him like really mad and like yelling at me uh, in a time that he didn't really do that very often. So um, it, it was really seared itself in my memory that like, you know, and, and now as a father, I can completely understand. I've done it to my own son. He, you know, he takes his scooter in front of the house and, and we live in a, a nice square and it has a, a little street around the square that's in the same pavement. Uh, so there's no curb line. Um, uh, and so he kind of goes right across the street without the curb line and he doesn't really understand that this is also a street. And he also almost got hit by a car coming out of the parking garage on the, on the street, of, you know, a few months ago. And I was really furious with him and, you know, I, I was yelling at him outside and I felt also so helpless, you know, like, um, these, these cars are just dominating. They're like these missiles in the street, uh, and, and they're aimed at my child. <laughs> uh, and so I feel <laughs> Helpless. I think the question of, of mobility and, you know, first of all, helplessness is, is, a, is a big topic we could spend another hour on, I think, for both the child and for the parent. Um, but how has, like, the, the, the mobility for children changed in, in, in the last, like, 20 years? Is it, is, it, is it changing a lot? Is it getting worse? Or how do you feel this? Yeah, so um, certainly in, in the UK... I mean, it's almost like it can't get much worse. So, so there's we've 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 had a, a, a really robust set of studies. Uh, now we've had three points of research. So, so in the 70s, early to early 1970s, then the early 1990s, and then the early 2010s, surveys of how children get around. So children's mobility, and this is uh, um, the, the key report is called One False Move. May Hillman and his colleagues, and and it comes from a road safety message that was that's actually quite pertinent to what you just said because in the UK in the in the I think 80s we had a 
a road safety campaign and it said one false move and you're dead right um and this was the message we were telling children and this is the message we were telling parents to tell their children and in a way um it it's it's sort of, you have to do a double take to realize actually that's a terrifying message for a child to hear that you know they might just like trip over and slightly fall off the pavement and oh my god so um be that as it may to answer your question the big loss in children's mobility certainly in terms of getting around the neighborhood was really between uh the 70s and the early 90s so you you saw dramatic uh for so the, the the key study uh stat from that study is that in the in the early 1970s about eight out of ten uh eight-year-olds used to go to used to go to school on their own you know walk, would walk to school and then by 1990 that had fallen from eight out of ten to one out of ten okay um so that captures that really dramatic um loss of freedom over a single generation and since then it's kind of got worse but it hasn't got that much worse because there isn't that much further down for it to fall um and this is a pattern that's interestingly it's different in the uk uh or i should say in england because that's an england study um compared to germany so one of the things that these researchers did was they also did a similar study in germany it doesn't go right back to the 70s but it does include both the 90s the early 90s and the early 2010s and in germany there has also been a fall in children's mobility or children's independent mobility but it's been nowhere near as dramatic um so so german kids have a lot more freedom than english kids of the same age i mean i i worked out from the study that you'd have to wait another 60 years in germany for german kids to drop down to the level of of the british kids the english kids today um but it is the case that all around the world we're seeing this loss of mobility and you know again there are different factors at play but i i i would argue that one of them is absolutely the you know that we just make it hard and dangerous uh for kids to get around on their own on foot or by bike this this study one false move in your dead is uh is uh that's re remarkable this is what it's called but my son uh sorry to talk about my son again but it's, it's such an important topic for me um he he sometimes i say hayden like you, you know you should stop at the curb and he says and he looks at me and he says why i'll turn into a pancake and i hate that because like i think his teachers uh must have told him that and he loves pancakes so he thinks that's fun uh <laughs> and so i always thought like, like whose idea was this it's exactly where i wanted to pick up on on the equity in in play and child-friendly streets and programming and you know, we, we had questions about this in the office, and I always had questions as a landscape architect. And, and where do these initiatives start? Like, what roles do you see in bottom-up initiatives? And and then on the other hand, how do you municipalities, you know, take part in this discussion? Is it important that they come from both sides? Um, you know, how do you see this? Okay, so I, I'm a universalist in, in the sense that what, what I, the case I'm trying to make is a case that is about all children you know if you like children's universal rights or entitlements um having said that you don't have to look very far to see that you know now today uh different children particularly different children from different 
cultural and ethnic groups have very different experiences of childhood and, and in particular different sort of access to experiences of the world around them. And that, you know, in many countries, for instance, black, Asian, minority children, uh, their, their movement is more restricted, their, um, you know, the way that they're treated in public space is worse. Public spaces are, are rarely kind of, you know, designed with uh, them in mind. So there are real challenges in kind of taking forward an equitable approach. That's compounded by the fact that, you know, in a way, who, who doesn't want to live in a child-friendly neighbourhood, right? I mean, we're talking about places that are, that are green, that are compact, that are, you know, welcoming, uh, where their traffic isn't dominant, you know, that are, that are clean, where the air is clean. Everybody wants that. So um, when there's programmes on the table, uh, you know, if the, the risk is that the sharp-elbowed, you know, well-organised middle classes, the wealthier amongst us, will be first around the table and will have the best resources and the, you know, the, the, the wherewithal to get these changes to happen. And that's a particular danger if you if you place a, a strong emphasis on, you know, kind of community appetite and community engagement. That's not to say that poorer or disadvantaged families don't care about this stuff, but it is to recognise, you know, the reality of different people's lives and, 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 as I say, the capacity of families in different circumstances. So I think you have to build, for the, the municipality has a key role here, has a kind of, the municipality holds the ring. And I, I think we've talked already about the importance of the municipality. Um, and the programmes need to have equity and inclusivity baked into them. You can't just rely on, you know, nice people doing nice things. Um, so you, you, you will need to engage with more disadvantaged communities, actually go out and, and, and make contact and not just say, hey, we're running this programme, do you want to join in too? But actually have discussions about what this um, agenda, what this programme might mean, how it might look different, um, and how there might be particular kind of needs or concerns in uh, marginalised or disadvantaged communities. So that has to be baked into the programmes, and that's not always easy to do. And most of the cities that I looked at, you know, were still, I think, in an early at an early stage with all of this. Um, but but and it is also true that you don't. Yeah, is that why you say that the that the participation based design is not enough? Is it because like uh not everyone can participate equally? It's that's no, it's not really. It's partly that, although that's really more about children's participation and thinking about what it means for children to have a voice, and that um we can't expect children to come up with all of the solutions to some of these problems about neighbourhood planning design. For instance, you know traffic and 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 the flow of traffic and the priorities of traffic safety and all that those are they're not just technical issues they're 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 moral and political issues but there are technical aspects to them and we we just shouldn't it's not reasonable for us to you know if you like put the whole of the um task of um solving these problems onto children um so that that's really the point about participation we, we need adult expertise um this is a slightly different point. It's about 
I suppose, recognising that different communities or sections of the community come from different starting points and have different capacities and also different concerns. And this is going to be true of any any program that 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 is dealing with, um, you know, uh, working in a context of inequality and of where certain groups are excluded. Um, and and I don't think I'm saying anything particularly new, uh, but I do think that um, the message to the municipality is yes, it's important to energise communities and pick up on that that undeniable appetite for change and for improvement but we you know watch out for the forces of gentrification because it's it's very clear if you look at some cities especially cities that have got you know very sort of market oriented housing where where rental costs can rise and fall quickly in a neighborhood house prices can rise and fall quickly where you've got that there's real danger that once a neighbourhood starts to be seen as desirable and nice, rental costs go up, living costs go up, poorer families face real financial pressures and uh, may find themselves, you know, being more or less forced to move out. And that's not healthy for anybody. And it's certainly not healthy for cities. It's not. And, and this, I guess there's a little bit of migration here. And I think that the cities like can embrace like migration and, and like how, how, if you're if you're moving between cities, either like uh, you know from adolescence uh, or teen to your university years, or you have or you're migrating between cities as a family, um, there, there's there's um, you know there's some element of of like this kind of child friendliness uh, involved in that. And like, do do people move because of these issues? I mean, I would say uh, there's a there's a an interesting change that's happened in the last 10, maybe 10 or 15 years. Okay. So before, let's say 10, 20, 30 years ago, there was a big exodus out of downtown areas. And that was happening in, in many cities around the world, um, in, particularly in high income, in high income countries. Um, you know, the suburbs were, were seen as, you know, the, the, the best place to bring up families. Um, but that has really turned around and, I know we're in it. We're now at a time where who knows what will happen out of the pandemic. But but until the start of the coronavirus virus epidemic, there was a very clear pattern of people moving back into more urban areas and wanting to stay there once they started, as many people do, of course, to have a family. And you know you saw that happening in places like Amsterdam, Melbourne. Um, it's been happening in Vancouver actually as as a strategic uh, priority for the city. The city wanted to keep families. In fact, that's one of the reasons I looked at Vancouver as a case study, that, that, that they prioritised families going back to the late 70s. Um, and you can see the results now. But that's also where the these um, sort of equity and, you know, gen, the forces of gentrification start to come into play because uh, you might you might be talking about areas, you often are talking about areas where there's a you know, maybe it was a, a a sort of 19th century residential part of the city, the kind of the kind of area that often you see just outside the historic core of European cities. So, you know, your typical European city often has a medieval core, then a kind of during the first wave of industrialization, you have these sort of 19th century belts. And then beyond that, you have the suburbs. And uh, 
so what you're seeing is that those 19th century belts are becoming more desirable places to live because of some of the attractions that, that many people feel about living in a in a more urban area, the life, the culture, um, you know, the social uh, contact, the energy. But that then is where you can start to see um, kind of problems that are created when an area becomes a hotspot. So, so, so that's that. That can be, you know, th these migration patterns can be quite complicated, and even more complicated when you've got external forces, whether that's you know, migrants and refugees, or whether it's the super rich coming in and wanting to hoover up, you know, properties for their investment portfolios, which is also a big feature of a lot of cities. Speaking, Speaking of, uh, of Vancouver <laughs> in that light, um, when you mentioned Vancouver, you know, my, my eyes light up because I can't tell you, Tim, how many times in my life I've thought like, I should just move to Vancouver, you know, and, and it's um and the reason is because i see myself as a kind of um i don't know i wouldn't say a technologist but you know i i, I like to live in in cities which are progressive and uh that that are uh that are friendly and green and and this is what vancouver is and i think the the planning policies there particularly the building standards for the last 20 years have been really interesting uh and like the daylight requirements and in uh in housing um and the fact that the city has developed really quickly, uh, it's quite contemporary. And the, you know, over 20 years or so, they, the city has, has pushed for building uh, policies and architectural standards, which kind of humanize all of that, um, that modernity. So at the street level, you have this sort of, you know, you have this kind of townhouse uh, typography and above you have these kind of glassy towers and you know what a nice place for a family to live i think you know you have these kind of different options when you're on the street it feels very friendly so if there's anywhere for me to migrate um or alex if you find me missing in prague one day you know you might look in vancouver right and and you know i feel you i mean it's a it's a beautiful city to visit and you know near the beginning of my book i've got a quote from larry beasley you know the the kind of inventor or popularizer of, of the kind of Vancouverism model, that model of, of high density downtown development, who says the presence of the child is the key feature that domesticated our ever intensifying city and made it relevant to the broadest possible spectrum of people. So, so that's really why I was interested to look at Vancouver. But it is tricky because now the internet is awash with stories from, you know, millennials and and basically you know kind of young professionals who who just cannot afford to stay in the city because rents have gone through the roof um and you know that that and you know that whatever else you say about that i don't think it's sustainable maybe it's not happening quite so much now but certainly when i was in vancouver that's pretty much all that everybody was talking about that the, the um, the, the cost of housing and also the cost of childcare, which was, again, astronomical in that city. And actually, the sorts of topics I wanted to speak about, public space, streets, they're in the mix and Vancouver's doing some good work, but, but they were fighting for air, you know, they're fighting for airtime uh, because these, these big, 
you know, bread and butter issues of how much is it going to cost for me to live in this neighborhood and how much is it going to cost me to get my child into childcare in this neighborhood were dominating the conversation. And rightly so, you know, I couldn't argue with that. No, that's that's been a that's been a particularly bad issue in, in Vancouver, the cost of living. Um, of course, the real estate investors uh, from all over the world, primarily uh, Asia, have benefited from that. Um, a lot of American investors have done well there as well. But um, but from a, yeah, for my friends that live there, they they often complain about those bread and butter issues, which makes it very difficult to to make a living or have a nice lifestyle there. Um, while you can enjoy the mountains and the the um, the seacoast highway, you know the 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 cost of living is just astronomical, which is making the city expand. I think in in places like New York, where where I'm from, you know, of course we dealt with these issues as well. Um, and the one thing and this pandemic that I actually look forward to is the resetting of of uh, office space, retail space, and and the cost of living. Uh, in the great cities of the world, including Vancouver, I think. In New York, we, we, we've seen it a lot in the last uh, nine months. There's been a, a kind of a great reset in, in real estate prices. That's going to be good because pe- people, young people can move to cities, families can stay, they can get a little bit more space. I think that's right. I mean, it's a little, if you like, above my pay grade, some of this kind of housing strategy stuff. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm more of an engaged observer than, you know, um, but the, the links are very clear. And I think you're right. It is a reset. Nobody really knows, or at least nobody's convinced me that they have the you know, ability to predict what is going to happen with cities um, as we come out of the pandemic. But I know here in London, we're already seeing rental costs coming down in, in quite large parts of, of London. And you know, there's an awful lot of, of particularly young people, young professionals and, and potential new families who will be breathing a sigh of relief at that because things have been crazy for the past you know, maybe 10 years or certainly seven or eight years. I think that's a nice way to step into case studies, uh, right? Alex, you were, you were looking at Rotterdam. Yeah, as I was going through your book, you featured a lot of you know, notable case studies um, and interventions from different cities like in Rotterdam as well as Oslo. They're really great deployment of some smart city technology that um, sort of gives uh, feedback in real time. Could you speak a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, Rotterdam is, is, so far as I can see, the city that has devoted the most time and resources over the longest period of time on explicitly making its built environment, its streets, parks, neighbourhoods, more child-friendly. So it, that's why I've devoted a whole chapter to my book, on, on the city. And it's also, it's very revealing that it did so for hard-nosed economic reasons, right? So, you know, back in 2006, there was a Dutch survey. Uh, I may have mentioned this, um, but basically, you know, Rotterdam came out as the worst place to bring up a child in the Netherlands. So uh, any family that wanted to was moving out and, and the city realized this was a real problem and uh, spent tens of millions of euros over mainly over two four-year periods. Um, and, you know, th- you can go and you can visit some of these neighbourhoods and you can see really quite detailed, systematic, comprehensive changes, changes to traffic flows, changes to parks and open spaces, schoolyards, uh, some nice sort of boutique projects, you know, one where, where a parking lot has been turned into a playful public space, 
a fantastic um, a sort of skate park and urban sports feature that doubles up as a flood protection area, you know, for, for, for areas of high rainfall. So some really, you know, innovative, uh, again, you, you'd expect this as a sort of Dutch design uh, quality um, and joining up with walking and cycling and basically, you know, making that city more human. Some of the ideas that Jan Gale planted in the city about creating a kind of urban lounge in the downtown area. So it's a really, it's a compelling story. And uh, I think there's a lot of lessons that, that other cities can learn about the importance of a municipal focus. So having a team or a person in the municipality who's driving these changes, you know, either giving resources, which is what Rotterdam did, or serious influence, influence and power, which is what Ghent has done, you know, with a team of officers, they don't have a budget, but they have a really good working relationship with the delivery departments. Um, th those are very crucial insights. And also what, what Rotterdam did very well, which almost no other city did, was get data, was to gather data about the impact of, of these changes. So actually asking children and families, what, what difference was this making? You know, measuring the inflows and outflows of families in different neighborhoods. Um, and, you know, this is an emerging agenda. Um, it's still, you know, quite fresh. And one of the things that we need to do is, is figure out what works and what doesn't work. Um, and not many of the cities that I looked at were that great at doing that. But, but Rotterdam was. Oslo also was. Um, but as you mentioned, the nice, the really neat thing about Oslo's project was that um, it, it was purely focused on mobility. How can the city make it easier for kids to get around walking and cycling? And it came up with this really well-designed, user-friendly smartphone app, which was called a traffic agent. And it was, you know, it's, the idea was almost like the children were secret agents, you know, spying on their neighborhood and reporting on the bad things that were happening. Uh, and sending their reports in to the municipality. But in this case, bad things meant, you know, dangerous crossings, um, barriers that were that were stopping them from, you know, having good sight lines. And there was a team within the municipality of highway engineers, and I met them, female highway engineers, interestingly, um, who would get these reports on a daily basis. And they had a budget to allow them to take action that might as as well as you know being able to get on the phone or type an email off to you know their colleagues to get things sorted out so if, sometimes it was something as simple as a bush that had grown too you know just grown and stopped the kids from being able to get along the sidewalk you know something you can fix in an afternoon but also at the other end of the scale there were say a new housing development was being built or a new school was being built then this app would help the municipality plan the routes, the crossings, you know, the safety measures, uh, and in, in some cases actually building new pathways to make it easier for children to walk and cycle. So more children would walk and cycle. And that linked with Oslo's strategic goal of reducing car use um, and, you know, promoting active travel. So, so it's as well as reflecting 
uh, the Norwegian commitment to children's rights. And Norway is a country that has a long-standing and strong commitment to children's rights. It's got legislation that very few countries have um, that, that require um, municipalities to involve children in planning. So it's, it's a really neat um, execution that shows how technology, far from being you know, the enemy, is actually a tool that can help um, make the, the real world you know, work better for kids. I think one you know, really important point you raised is that sometimes these investments don't always have to be so, so uh, you know, deep financially um, and that there are ways to invest in, in inexpensive interventions. And if you had any kind of examples you wanted to talk about of that specifically. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you asked that question, um, Alex. So I was really keen to make it clear that this is not just a kind of rich nation or a rich city agenda. Um, and so that's why, you know, I wanted to find out what was happening in cities like Tirana in Albania, pretty much the poorest country in Europe, not a lot of money in the bank, or even more so, I mean, Recife in Brazil is perhaps the best example that I saw, you know, really big problems of inequality, uh, of, of, of um, very poor neighbourhoods. Now, you don't solve poverty just by, you know, making places nicer. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is that it's really, it's very relevant to poor families. Uh, you know, how can my kid get to school safely? Um, where can my kids play out, um, you know, so that they're not just stuck in the house all day? How can we make the, the environment, you know, cleaner for, for families? These are not just rich city problems. And so in Recife, they did some great work in some of the favelas, cleaning up um, the neighbourhoods, improving uh, walking routes, sorting out, um, you know, uh, drainage and and kind of water flow and also just finding little pockets of space that uh, could be given I mean and sometimes I'm talking about not much bigger than the room that I'm in right now but that could become sociable spaces for, for children and families and and one of the things about Recife was that they had this program running this improvements and it was so popular that neighborhoods were queuing up join and some neighbors just started doing these improvements off their own bat they didn't wait for the municipality to come along you know with the construction guys and the paint and all the rest of it they just rolled their sleeves up and did it themselves so i think that's a really powerful uh demonstration of how relevant this vision of making neighbors work better for children how relevant it is to all income groups um but i i would say there is more that we need to learn about how what this means in low and middle income country contexts, um, you know, and and, um, and and you know, there's maybe a book too that needs to be written about you know India and Africa and, um, and 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 some of the Asian countries where we're still you know figuring out what this means. But but I think everyone still I believe signs up to this idea that part of a good childhood, you know, is having that space and time to play and it being easy to get around and that you're not facing you know, real threats, traffic threats, environmental threats when you step outside your front door. So, Tim, maybe we can just talk about what we finished up on before, just in case uh, we didn't have the, the right recording. So uh, for the listener out there like that doesn't uh, hadn't studied Jane Jacobs or, or Jan Gell, um, and the things that I can see in the city that I know they had an impact on, um, just tell us what that means. Like, what does it mean to have a Jan Gell street or a Jane Jacobson street? I guess, I mean... 
one of the things that maybe will help people cotton on to what what I'm talking about, you know, with, with sort of just life on the street and, and feeling comfortable in, in public spaces. Think about the places we choose to go to on our holidays. Right. I mean, I know those of us, you know, in, in, in England, we often look to, you know, Spain or Italy or France as, as places where we where, where we enjoy spending time. And, and one of the really attractive things about some of the towns and cities that we visit is just the, the, the pleasure of strolling down you know, an engaging, attractive, lively, you know, a market or a town square or a promenade along a pedestrian street. You know, those are, I think, very familiar, enjoyable experiences. And of course, in, you know, in, in, in many Mediterranean countries, children are very much part of the mix of that. Um, and you'll see children with their families, you'll see children and uh, um, you know, playing or on their bikes or scooters. You'll see older teenagers hanging out maybe as the evening comes along. So it's that um, it's kind of bottling some of that and saying, you know, this does not just have to be something that we pay a lot of money to fly somewhere warm and have for a week a year or two weeks a year. This kind of relaxed, sociable um, uh, uh enjoyable time in public space where we're comfortable taking our kids or where our kids are comfortable and can hang out and play that can be part of our everyday lives i think that's really uh, it's about that that sort of weaving play uh gentle exploration uh casual social contact a little bit of unpredictability you know don't always quite know what's going to happen when you go to a new in a new, in a new place or if you're in a public space but that's also, you know, it's exciting as well, as long as it doesn't get too scary. It's those sorts of qualities that I think we're talking about. Uh, if you like, at the, if I could use a philosophical word, at the phenomenological level, at the level of experience. Um, and that those experiences of everyday engagement and of, of exciting our curiosity and of our social lives, um, we should, we, you know, that's that should be part and parcel of, of the time that we spend in our neighbourhoods. And after all, it's one of the things that, you know, people are looking to experience online. And, 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 and you know, I'm, I'm kind of trying to turn that around as far as children are concerned and saying. They we all benefit and children benefit if they're having some of those experiences IRL in real life and not just being left, you know, finding that social contact um on a, on a screen so maybe what are some of the difference differences or, or nuances in between ages of children i think a lot of times when we're talking about children in cities it's maybe some people's first thoughts is to go to you know like children under 10 but i imagine that the needs of teenagers are much different um could you talk about maybe some like what those nuanced differences might look like yeah space? it's a re that's a really good question i think i mean i sometimes fall into the trap of having you know the eight-year-old child as the kind of the sort of symbolic child and you know NGOs 880 cities you'll probably know the work of that NGO and and, and there is something actually quite interesting about eight-year-old children I mean it, it is a it's a transitional age but you can fall into the trap of just you know that the, all of your pictures and your models and your processes and your um, ideas actually they they, they just focus on that you know, maybe six to 10 year old age range. So we do need to look at younger children and we need to look at teenagers. And my book tries to do that. 
and to take those one at a time. I think with, with younger children, the first thing to realize, it's obvious really, you know, you, you don't, you, children aren't are always with a caregiver. They're always with a parent or a caregiver. So you're not really thinking about the child on their own. You're thinking about the dyad, you know, the pairing of the, of the, of the caregiver and the child. So when you think about mobility, you're thinking about, you know, buggies or, or um, strollers, or, or you're thinking about people carrying babies. You're thinking about a much more localized way of getting around, assuming we're talking about, you know, walking or cycling, and we're not talking about cars. Uh, you're thinking about public spaces that are maybe a bit more intimate or, or you know, at a, at, a, at a smaller scale, especially when you're thinking about places to play. Um, and and you're, may, you're maybe thinking about um, uh, places that are a little bit less, you know, energetic and, and maybe sort of full of, 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 of the, the hustle and bustle of city life. With teenagers, um, of course, other things being equal to, you know, teenagers have much greater mobility. Um, so actually, one of the things I'd love to look at, I didn't get the chance to look at it too much in my book, but public transport becomes really important. Um, and I think that almost every city could do a lot more to think about how it can make its its public transport system work better for teenagers. But you're also thinking about different patterns of of, of social time in space. Teenagers don't talk about play, and play has a slightly different kind of expression with teenagers. It can be more performative. There can be often a kind of mix of you know the audience. And the being, you know, those watching and those being watched, um, the kind of interplay amongst your peer group, and you know that, that sort of jockeying for position, and and you know which groups are you hanging out with. That the, the, that dynamic of the peer group is much more important than it is with younger children. And so teenagers, I think, need social space that works for them. And, and you know, there's some, and some nice observations about. If we watch young people in public space, then literally having different layers, you know, having kind of sort of like amphitheaters or um, structures that can allow small groups and fluctuating groups of young people to spend time, move around, you know, move from one group to another in a way that is comfortable for them and where they feel safe, but they don't feel like they're under a microscope. I think those are some of the um, things that, that are different with teenagers and, and crucially with teenagers um, they're very well informed about what works and what doesn't work for them so there's a real imperative if you're designing public space or you're thinking about a scheme and wanting to get that to work well for teenagers to engage with teenagers themselves um, I think you know with, with with younger children you can probably draw quite a lot on what we know from research and what we know from other projects but with teenagers, it can be, you know, it's really invaluable to get that local intelligence and knowledge to, to figure out, you know, what the culture is or the different cultures, some of the barriers, um, some of the, you know, maybe the, the hostility that teenagers can face um, and, and bring that out into the open and really address that head, in, head on in projects. So I think those are some of the things that I, I try and talk about in the book. And, and, and frankly, a lot of it is drawing on, on good work by other people. So Bernard Van Leer Foundation has done some great work with its Urban 95 program on, on the younger age range. There's some fabulous stuff that the Growing Up Boulder project, so that's based in Boulder, Colorado, um, 
has done around teenagers, for instance, a kind of checklist for teens in parks. It's a really useful resource. That's an amazing uh, summary, and I feel like you, you, you wrapped up a lot of what what we've touched on. And I love the question, you know, that, that uh, we're not, you know, not all children are, are created equal. You know, this is a really good way to kind of summarize what's needed from different perspectives and cities. We talked about the really like uh, uh, kids, uh, adolescents, teens. We've talked um, about adults and, and how, uh, the, you know, cities created for the kid can also be great for, for adults and seniors. So I really love this conversation, Tim. Is there anything that you think we've missed that, that you know, you'd love to kind of uh, end on? I mean, I guess I just want to make a plea again for, you know, this is not just about making cities better for kids. It, it's not even just about that, that, that line, which I believe in, but the line that if, we were, if, if, if cities work well for children, they'll work well for everybody. It's about recognising that, you know, making cities work well is really hard it's a it's what some call a wicked issue it's complex there are different points of view there are competing vested interests there are different starting points there are all sorts of different potential interventions you could think of different ways of measuring the outcomes it's really complicated and one of the things that i think is most powerful about thinking about children is that it can help find a way through that complexity and you you, you know as a, as a decision maker or as a just a you know, a city dweller, you can start to see a clearer picture of the way we need cities to change. Um, that, 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 that thinking about the child is, a, is, a, is an organising theme. It's, it's, it's a way of getting a narrative and a, and a positive story that we can tell about the way that cities need to change. And, and, and I hope that that's something, something a bit fresh that I, I, my book brings to this whole debate about, you know, um, uh, growing up in cities. Yeah, that's well said. Uh, the city is a complex animal, and it's uh, and it needs really complex uh, process and participation from all walks of life uh, to make it right. So, that's a that's a really good point that you that you end with. Um, Tim Gill, thank you so much for your time, uh, for your patience, uh, because of the the, the complex complex. Uh, complexities we had with the technology and I really appreciate um, you walking through your research and, and your book with us and I think uh, you know this is a real treat for our audience as well so thank you so much it's been a pleasure I'm really looking forward to, to, to getting it out there Tim reminds us that playgrounds evolved in tandem with the intensifying dependence on the automobile, fragmenting the spaces where children once roamed unbounded. He challenges us to re-examine our car-dependent culture and ask, how do we untangle this? And he's quick to point out how much children have had to sacrifice during this pandemic and the indelible impact it will have on their generation. It's work like Tim's that spotlights the need for our conscious efforts to better incorporate children's needs into our cities. For the spaces we create today will significantly affect generations to come. Tim's book, Urban Playground, How Child-Friendly Planning and Design Can Save Cities, was published this year 
2021 by the Royal Institute of British Architects and can be found for purchase in this show's description. So thank you so much, Tim. It was such a pleasure to have you and thank you to all who have tuned in. We've got another one for you in two weeks. Design in the City is a Resite production and Resite is a global nonprofit connecting people and ideas to improve the urban environment. This episode was directed and produced by myself, Alexandra Siebenthal, with the support of Martin Berry, Radka Andrzejczkova, Nicholas Zellers, and Alexander White, as well as Nano Energies and the Czech Ministry of Culture. It was recorded in the Recite office in Prague and edited by Little Big Studio. Thank you.